When we look at things like canning or gardening or keeping animals, and we start to understand the benefits to us as humans beyond just being cute or old fashioned. You know, it's better for our health. There's studies that show that being in the dirt, that microbes are actually antidepressant. It grounds you, it centers you, it's, it's calming. I mean, there's science is starting to back this up. That's why I am such a fan of encouraging folks, even if you live in an apartment in New York City, how can you take some of these rural arts and skills and weave them into your life? Not because you're just trying to be trendy. It's gonna bring you a lot of, I think, health benefits, mental benefits, and just peace in the process. I'm Lindsay Linton Buck, and you're listening to Women in Wyoming, where I talk with inspiring and influential women around the state and learn about their lives, journeys, and how they got to where they are today. This is Chapter 4, Rising. This time, Jill Winger, an online homestead mentor and author of the Prairie Homestead Cookbook. I met Jill photographing her cookbook, which launched this spring and quickly became an Amazon bestseller. I loved her story and wanted to feature her for this project. During our interview, I learn about Jill's homesteading evolution, how she became an influencer in the homesteading field, and her mission to live more intentionally off the land and share what she's learned with the world. Here's Jill. I grew up just kind of your typical 90s kid in a little house in town. My parents didn't have land or animals, but I've been a little bit of an oddball my whole life. So literally by the age of three, I was obsessed with horses and I would ask my parents all the time, when can we move to the country? When can we get the animals in the barn? So it was in there from the beginning. It just took me a while to get to where I wanted to be ultimately. Your great grandma, she seemed like she was quite the pioneer homestead woman. Do you think you had a little bit of her in you? Yeah, I do think, I like to say, I think it skips some generations, but some of that genetic stuff was in there. But yeah, we definitely have homesteaders on both sides of the family, like most people do, you know coming out west but so my great grandma in particular I never met her but I've heard the stories and she was a homesteader in southeast Idaho even after her husband kind of had enough and decided to go back to town she was bound and determined to stay on the homestead and she was tough she grew all her own food and milked her cow and she was known for her skills with a gun she'd chase off people who tried to bug her and uh, she's a horsewoman and so I think that I have a lot of her in my in my genetics can you just paint a picture of where we are now, this setting, and what your homestead looks like? Yes. So we are south of Chugwater, Wyoming, a little ways. So that means we're wide open, flat prairie, grassland. Right now it's green and gorgeous. A lot of the time it's brown and just tall grass, but wide open spaces. And we really love living here, even with the wind and you know the Wyoming weather. But we are here on 67 acres, and we try to grow as much of our own food as possible, which means we keep beef cattle, dairy cows, chickens, grow a big garden, you know, the whole nine yards. So when do you remember that first moment where you thought, I want to get into this homesteading way of life? So I'd say the farm obsession faded a little bit or it just got buried under the surface. And I really began to shift my focus towards horses as my way of being connected to rural life. So I rode horses in high school, I was in 4-H, and then when I turned 18, I decided that for school and for college, I wanted to do equine studies. So I was originally from North Idaho. I moved all the way down to Cheyenne, about 1,200 miles to go to school and pursue a career in the horse industry. And that's kind of what got my foot in the door with this rural way of life. And then homestead desires kind of resurfaced later down the road. And what did you discover when you were 
pursuing your first passion, which was your love for horses. Why didn't you continue in that field? Yeah, there, there was definitely pieces of it I loved. Um, there was other pieces that I found were a little bit not what I expected. It was a little more monotonous than I thought it would be, which I think anything you want to be really good at, it takes a level of just discipline and monotony to get to that point. But I kind of started to realize that horses were maybe more of a side deal for me rather than being day in and day out, seven days a week. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I still have horses to this day, but I've been able to focus some of that passion into other pursuits, which has been ultimately a little bit better fit for me. But what started it all, the catalyst was buying this property. And we were newlyweds. We were looking for our first house. Instead of getting the cute little picket fence, you know, next to Walmart in town that's convenient, we found this place, which is tumble down. It was just utterly destroyed. No one wanted it, but it was within our price range. So we, we got it just with the intention of having horse property. That was the only thing I could think of at that point. But before we even signed the paperwork, I just was literally hit with this overwhelm of inspiration of what it could become. And I was thinking, you know, we have this mortgage now, how can we make it produce and not just be something that just takes our resources? How can it give back to our food sources and our lifestyle and our quality of life? And it was at that moment that I started to get the vision of what could we grow here? What could we make? What could we produce? And then beyond that, it was a lot of bumbling. Like there wasn't just this clear cut path to where we are now. There was mistakes in figuring out what didn't, didn't work. And we would get a vision and then we would kind of go backwards a little bit and then keep going forward. So it's been a path for sure. What were some of those early steps where you and your husband, Christian, did start realizing there could be a bigger picture here in terms of being more self-sufficient? So the very first thing we did was the compost pile. And the main reason was we couldn't afford a tractor. And we had horses and horses make horse manure and we had this pile. So I thought, how can I not have a ginormous pile in my backyard for the rest of my life? And I had this idea from a library book to compost. So I talked Christian into using some scrap lumber and building a little compost bin. And I researched about the airflow and the size. But as silly as it sounds, when he finished that bin, it was the first thing we built on this property. And it was just this little humble three-sided thing, box. And seeing that completed and starting to fill it with horse manure for the first time, like I was ecstatic. Like I was so supercharged with like, we built something, it's ours. I'm going to create from this. It's going to make my garden better. I'm going to grow food with this compost. I know it sounds ridiculous, but that was this lightning bolt of inspiration hit me. And then from there, I'm like, well, what, you know, I need a garden to use the compost in. We need chickens to have eggs to go with the vegetables we're going to grow. And then, you know, the milk cow came and it just was this domino effect. So in 2010, speaking of the domino effect, you actually started a blog, The Prairie Homestead, which has just grown and grown and grown. Tell me why you wanted to start that and and wanting to share what you were learning and your story with others. So it started out pretty humbly. And, and honestly, the reason behind it, it's kind of like how we came into homesteading through the back door. Can I come into blogging through the back door? And it was more of an outlet for me to be able to talk about my compost pile and our chickens and the new garden because I didn't have a lot of folks local who were into that stuff yet. And going to all the family gatherings and just like blabbing about it nonstop, I could tell people were getting kind of annoyed, <laughs> a little bit tired of it. So it was a way for me just to express myself, to think of through my ideas, to have an outlet of creativity. And then not too long after it though, I started to realize with the comments I was getting and the response I was getting, 
there's other people that want to do this and I can help them do this and we can create a community around this. And that's when I started to get more strategic and actually take it a little bit more seriously. Well, and now you are, you know, this homestead mentor and you have millions of page views a year and thousands of followers. Talk to me about that growth because it is pretty remarkable. I mean, we're sitting out here, the nearest town is 30 miles away. Yeah. At least Mm -hmm. you can see your neighbors in the distance, but you really are doing this from the middle of the prairie in Wyoming. How did you learn to think big and have this bigger vision and grow it to what it's become now? It's really a process. You know, I think any business you create or any project you do, it's really a process of becoming who you need to be in order to have that sort of platform or that sort of growth. And so we didn't have big dreams at the beginning. It was very much small potatoes. And I remember trying to code everything myself. And I remember one Christmas vacation, because my mom was there to watch the kid. We had one kid then, and we have three. I spent the entire Christmas vacation, like bloodshot eyeballs, trying to figure out coding. And you know, so I had very small aspirations at the beginning. We just did everything bootstrapping. But it was this process. I love to grow. I love to expand. That's kind of how I'm wired. Uh, And then figuring out who I needed to become to get to the next step. And my goals were very small at first. And the longer I've been in this journey, the bigger my goals get. And now they're sky high. But it was definitely, you know, getting rid of different limiting beliefs I had around business or success or my ability to influence others. And just a lot of personal work that it took to get to this point. And I know we've talked about this before, Jill, uh, when I we worked together for your cookbook, but just that, you know, you have had that personal journey of getting over some of those limiting beliefs. Can you just explain that process in a little more depth where you came from mm-hmm. and some of the tools that you implemented to help you expand your worldview? Yeah, yeah. So I came from, I don't come from a family of entrepreneurs, right? They're just very content. Like they just do their thing and they're cool with with what they do. But even as a child, that just didn't feel like it was my calling. That wasn't what I was supposed to do. So around that, you know, when you're in that environment, you inadvertently pick up those belief patterns. And so my biggest belief was people like us don't do things like that. So whenever I would see someone with influence or success, and success doesn't have to mean wealth, it just can mean, you know, being good at something that they're passionate about, or the ability to influence other people. It was always, well, that's cool for them, but that's didn't cross my mind that I could actually achieve that level of success, because it was just people like us don't do things like that. And so it was getting very clear on when I felt stuck or limited, why I felt stuck or limited. And it's easy to blame that on outside circumstances, like I don't live close to a big town, or I don't have friends who do this, or I don't have the money to do this. But when you break it down, those are generally just excuses. So it's that process of getting brutally honest with yourself, which isn't always fun. And then feeding your brain all the good stuff, the good personal development books, being around people who are big dreamers and big thinkers has been a really important aspect of that for me. And just learning how to catch that vision and reshape your thoughts. I think for me, though, personal development books and podcasts and just really being careful what I'm putting in my brain has been the key. I want to talk about the cookbook because that's how we met. And uh, it was such an amazing job. And for you was getting this huge book deal with Macmillan, this New York Mm. publisher. You booked an agent. Let's first talk a little bit about that cookbook process and your vision for creating that. But I do also want you to speak to really the process and the nuts and bolts of how you made that happen. It was a project, wasn't it? 
It was an awesome project. It was so fun. I still think back to those two weeks and I'm like, that was one of the most fun creative projects I've ever done. It was a dream job. I mean, it was a dream team, Wyoming women. We had Greta there styling too. And it really was just one of those amazing, amazing jobs and experiences. It flowed just like it was meant to be. So the vision for the cookbook I've always had recipes on the blog, and I noticed that the most popular recipes were just staples. How to make your own French bread, how to make crackers, how to make sour cream, how to make gravy. And I started to realize that people were hungry for just that old-fashioned kitchen knowledge that we just don't have. And, you know, a lot of people, or some people had grandmas or great-grandmas who taught them how to make gravy and bread. Uh, I didn't. And, or, you know, my mom doesn't love cooking. A lot of women aren't into as much cooking as they used to be, which is which is cool. But I know there are some people out there who are still craving that knowledge. And so the goal with the cookbook was to bring that back. And I wanted it to be attainable and doable and empowering because there's no reason that bread or gravy should be complicated or scary. I also wanted to use a lot of whole food ingredients because I noticed that even in some of the recipes I saved for my grandma's recipe box, she used a lot of process ingredients because that was kind of the new thing when she was writing her recipes down, mm-hmm. you know, the, the margarine and the box cake mixes, which, you know, I knew she didn't cook like that as a child. So I'm like, what would she have cooked as a child? And I wanted to bring that back because I'm not a big fan of the processed foods. You know, like a lot of folks these days, I'm doing the whole food thing. So I'm like, how can we make this down home, simple ingredient food just taste really good and not be scary? So tell me about how you actually then, after you had this vision, put it into action. I had no idea a cookbook took, or any book, takes so long to come to fruition. It's just a really normal part of the traditional publishing process, but it's just a lot longer than folks think. So we put a proposal together. We pitched it to different publishing houses. I think the proposal was about 40 pages. So it took us several months to just even create the proposal. And we talked to different editors and, and houses to figure out who was interested and once we finally settled on our, the one that we wanted to go with, which was Macmillan, I had six months to write the cookbook, which included a lot of bonus chapters. Like there's a homestead chapter and lots of extra stuff and all the recipes. So I think it was July, end of July till January. I was a crazy woman. Like it didn't come up for air. We were cooking nonstop and writing nonstop. And you came in the middle of that and we were strategizing which recipes to shoot and which ones were going to be here or there. And yeah, it was, it was a little crazy. What was that um, process like for you to actually go and, and pitch some of these publishers or part of you that was nervous and that was outside of your comfort zone or were you like, no, I'm meant to be here and you should definitely publish my book. <laughs> definitely nerves involved. I think a year or two prior on my journey of building this platform, I learned how to push into the fear. And I've kind of, well, there's different types of fear, right? There's some fear, like if your body's telling you not to jump off a cliff without gear, then maybe you should listen to that fear. But there's other fear that's just the resistance inside of us speaking and and just trying to keep us safe. And I've learned when I feel that fear, it means forward and push into it. And so when I was, I had that fear, like, what am I doing? I live in Chugwater, Wyoming, and I'm pitching, you know, Macmillan in New York. And these are big time editors. It was scary, but almost exhilarating because I know I've done it enough now with different scary things. I know what comes on the other side and it feels really good. So it was, it was fun. I really enjoyed the process. But you didn't grow up cooking. No, I hated your household, cooking. right? I hated co- cooking until we got married. And then my repertoire was spam sandwiches and frozen burritos. (laughs) So Christian was loving that at the beginning. So, yeah. 
So let's talk about that transformation and that reinvention. When did you start finding that you had some talent and interest in creating things not out of spam? I would say not as much talent, just like determination. So when I got pregnant with our first child and I decided to stay at home because it just didn't make sense to drive to town and pay for daycare and all that. I started to get bored, number one, because I'm super type A. And then I started to to look at cookbooks and I would try to find the most complicated recipe because it would take more time and keep me occupied. So that's kind of where it started. And I messed everything up so bad. Like you can ask Christian, the bread were bricks and it was burnt and it was inedible. And the roasts, we would have to use a serrated knife to even get them cut into pieces. It was just trial and error, like so much trial and error. And I would Google it and I would try this recipe. I would try that recipe. I'd combine them. I'd watch a video. I'd read a cookbook and I'd try it over and over and over again. And one day it clicked. I remember there was this one day when I couldn't make a loaf of bread to save my life. And then one day it just worked. And ever since then, I make bread all the time. I'm known for my bread. I teach people how to make bread, but it just took a lot of failures to get to that point. That's pretty amazing, Jill, that you went from spam sandwich girl mm-hmm. to now <laughs> yep. a cookbook with this big New York publisher, yep. number one best-selling cookbook on Amazon. I mean, that's pretty incredible. Yeah. I'm sure the people who knew me back in the burrito days and the spam days are like, why did they give that girl a cookbook seal? <laughs> <laughs> Was that quote, persistence trumps talent every single time, which I really believe. And and I've had folks come up and say, you're just so talented and you're gifted. And I'm like, I really don't see myself as gifted. I just see myself as just a lot of trial and error. Mm -hmm. That's it. You just keep going. Keep going. Yeah. One of the quotes I really love in the intro of your book, it's from Joe Salatin. Mm -hmm. Is that correct? And tell me who he is. He is kind of the father of this modern day sustainable farm movement. He is just an incredible guy. He's written a lot of books, does a lot of speaking. Yeah, and he's the voice of our movement. So he wrote the intro for your cookbook. He says, these rural arts and skills too often get shoved to the margins of our sophisticated society. And I I just love how he put that, first of all, these rural arts and skills, because I think sometimes people can look at living in the country as, oh, you're not as sophisticated as if you live in an urban area. Uh, What does that mean to you? I love how he, he phrased that because that's really, he summed up my mission really well, that intentionality. And I believe that there was this feeling, and you, know, you look at how history unfolded, it made total sense. We had everyone living rural, and then we had more industrialization and folks moving to the cities, and it was high society, and it was exciting, and it was more sophisticated than Uncle Steve, who lived in the country and wore overalls and barefoot, right? So there was that feel that country equals podunk and city equals sophisticated and high class. And it makes sense with the historical background. But, you know, when we look at things like canning or gardening or keeping animals and we start to understand the benefits to us as humans beyond just being cute or old fashioned, you know, it's better for our health. There's studies that show that being in the dirt, the microbes are actually antidepressant. It grounds you. It centers you. It's it's calming. I mean, there's science is starting to back this up. That's why I am such a fan of encouraging folks, even if you live in an apartment in New York City. How can you take some of these rural arts and skills and weave them into your life? Not because you're just trying to be trendy. It's going to bring you a lot of, I think, health benefits, mental benefits, and just peace in the process. Mm. Yeah. Can you speak to how you felt that personally? Yeah. And that's one of the things I love about our life is this contrast. So on one hand, I can run a successful online business and talk to people all over the the world and speak and, and have a book out. But no matter how big that gets, I will always, always keep 
this piece of the garden and I'm not gonna ever hire all that out because I want to have that manual labor and that dirt time and the chicken time and all of that because it, it is like meditation for me. And it's so, I know it, it just makes me feel so much more centered and calm. And so I feel like that really drives what I do is be able to keep that piece. I like the, the achieving piece as well. I like both, but having those in contrast to me just feels really, really good. And so that's why I'm so passionate about teaching it to others. And you don't have to live in the country to do this. And that's really the most important piece. It's not about where you live, what animals you have, how big your backyard is. It's really the mindset of, yeah, you know, I have a, a smartphone and a laptop and I run an online business, but I am still choosing to be intentional with the time I have, my fingers in the soil and just bonding with nature and just being still or spending time with animals or, you know, just intentional living around those simple skills, I think is really key for anyone. New York City, LA, I don't care where you live, that will bring a measure of higher quality of life to what you're doing. You know, you've tapped into your mission and what it is you want to do. You've just released this hugely successful cookbook and your blog is profitable. Where do you see this continuing to go or where, where would you like it to continue to, to grow and evolve into? So I'd say my big vision goals, I want to turn the Prairie Homestead into a national brand. So that's what I really have my sights on. That's on my vision board. It's way out there. And sometimes when you have a goal that big, you don't really know all the steps that are going to take you there, but I just know that's where we're headed. So right now I'm getting really clear on what my audience wants. So we're creating some smaller courses and products like around canning or chickens that are really going to serve them and their needs. We're looking at launching a podcast here in the next little bit and potentially creating some product lines like aprons and pots and pans and things. So lots of stuff in the works. Don't know exactly how it's all going to happen, but I know it will. <laughs> well, and I just want to go back a little bit too, because as you said, it's it's been a journey to get here. So what have been some of those trials and tribulations that you've personally overcome over the last almost decade of creating this brand? Yeah, lots. You know, I think success is just a pile of failures you're standing on. So one that was kind of unexpected is that sometimes people who are in your court at the beginning aren't always in your court at the end. And sometimes they don't understand that what you're doing is not to make them feel bad or make them feel small, but you're just following what you're called to do. So that's been hard, a hard lesson to learn that not everyone's going to be with us long term, but they choose to step out because they're not understanding our mission, which is part of the process. And I've, I've heard many folks talk about that. That's not a unique incident that's kind of just how it goes just human nature so that was tough I think with online business learning how to constantly adapt you know with different social media algorithms and changes and so I remember countless times when we had something just dialed in on Facebook or Google thinking I was cruising and then they would change something and we'd be down to flatline zero and we have to start all over again so that's a constant process and I think for me it always a little bit of fear comes up, like, what if it's all gone? What if it's done? What if my, my time is over? But it never is. You just have to keep innovating and keep on trucking. How do you deal with that online criticism? Because when you are out there and you have thousands of followers and you're putting out this way of life, I assume inevitably you also get some of that pushback. So mm-hmm. how, do, how have you dealt with that criticism? That doesn't always feel positive. It doesn't. Lovely. <laughs> no. And it always is uncomfortable. I've been doing this a long time and I'm better at handling it, but there's still days where it just, you're like, man, that just still, that stung, you know? I think what I tell myself now that helps the most is there's people who genuinely want to offer you positive feedback and I'm willing to take that constructive criticism, but someone who's just attacking to attack, I always tell myself, 
this is a Brene Brown, I'm paraphrasing, but if you're not in the arena getting your butt kicked as well, then I'm just not interested in your feedback. So when I have folks in the peanut gallery, right, given all these little criticisms and just being mean or nasty, I'm just like, hey, you're not out here. I'm putting myself out here. I'm being brave. I'm being vulnerable in a good way. And so, eh, we don't, it's okay. We don't need to hear what you have to say. Very true. So this is chapter four, which is called Rising. And in one very literal sense, I do see this upward trajectory. But I think within that, you can't take everything with you. Some things you have to leave behind or literally Mm -hmm. destroy. So I think there's a real component of reinvention and evolution in this chapter. What has that been for you? Um, Lots of things to let go. Yeah, different phases of my business that especially like moving forward, I'm wondering they were really an identity for me at one point and maybe they're kind of going to be taking a different role moving forward. Also just letting go of perfectionism sometimes. Like I'm type A, I like to achieve. I can also be very critical of myself and I want everything perfect. So I've really, this is my lesson as of late, that if I'm going to keep getting bigger and expanding, I have to let go of some of the details or assign them to someone else. And I really like was like holding on tooth and nail for a while. Like, no, no one can do it as well as I can. But that's not true. Especially right now, that's what's on my mind when I think of releasing is letting go of that perfection. What's been the the most important thing you've learned to help you get to where you are today? I'd say to really look at what lights you up. Don't look at what society is telling you to do. Don't look at what your parents told you to do or what they told you to study or what job they told you they, that they thought you should do. But look at what lights you up and follow that spark. And maybe you can't do it as a profession right at the beginning. Maybe it's just a hobby or a weekend thing. But I think there's far too many people who are just following this societal current of you know, we get the job we don't really like, we stay in it till we're 65, and then we retire, and then we, you know, they're just like, they're just stuck in this rut. And I believe that every single person has something special that they're meant to develop and share and find that. And for me, it's homesteading, and I love entrepreneurship as well. It might not be that for you listening, but find out what that is for you and chase it like crazy. I literally wake up in the morning excited about it. I go to bed, I can't sleep because I'm excited about it. It's just, it's just awesome from that little girl growing up in the suburbs to where you are now, do you feel like that little girl is living her her childhood dream? I do, yeah. And that's what I think I want other people to experience what it feels like to have something come to fruition that feels so outrageous because I think a lot of people miss out on that. And man, it's amazing. It's just absolutely amazing. And, and there's days where I still walk out the door, you know, it's wide open spaces and it's pretty and the metal larks are singing and I literally still just get overwhelmed by, I actually am living here. And I think just that peace and quiet is just very calming. And I still like to go travel and connect with people and, you know, go to events and speak and stuff, but just to be able to come here and have that solitude is everything. That was Homestead mentor and cookbook author, Jill Winger. To see Jill's full profile and portraits, visit womeninwyoming.com. That's womeninwyoming.com. You can also follow my journey on Instagram at womeninwyo, that's women in W-Y-O, or on Facebook at Women in Wyoming. Chapter four is supported in part by the Wyoming Humanities Council and the Equipoise Fund. Momentum is our nonprofit fiscal partner. Additional funding for the Women in Wyoming exhibit comes from Linton Properties and Big R Ranch and Home. 
The Women in Wyoming Multimedia Exhibit is on view from October 25th, 2019 to August 2nd, 2020 at the Buffalo Bill Center of the West in Cody, Wyoming. The exhibit features large-scale portraits and audio soundscape and interactive components celebrating the achievements, power, and learned wisdom of Wyoming women today. I'm Lindsay Linton-Buck, and you've been listening to Women in Wyoming. Women in Wyoming.